two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe, or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. These are the words of Arthur C. Clarke, a man who wrote such classic science fiction novels as 2001, A Space Odyssey. In our galaxy alone, there are hundreds of billions of stars, and at least a hundred billion planets. The observations of our astronomers tell us that billions of those planets could be very similar to our own planet Earth, and that those planets might perhaps harbor alien life. What if extraterrestrials, or E.T., do exist, and one day they decide to come visit the Earth? Hopefully, before they pop in for a visit, they'll call first. Maybe they'll leave us a message. What will they say? And what will we do when E.T. calls? Will we call back? Should we call back? solar system, we have eight planets. The Earth is one of them, and we know that our own planet hosts a wide variety of life. There's been life here in some form for over three billion years. Consider our neighbor in the solar system, the planet Jupiter. It's the largest planet in our solar system by far, so big that a thousand planet Earths could fit inside it. We've sent several unmanned robotic explorers there over the years, it literally has dozens of moons orbiting around it. One of Jupiter's moons is a place called Europa. This world has an entire ocean of liquid water below its surface. There is more water in that ocean than all of the Earth's oceans combined. Astronomers believe that perhaps someday soon, we might discover some alien life forms swimming below the surface of this distant moon. Some astronomers also believe we might possibly find tiny microbes living in our neighboring planet Mars. But what about the notion of intelligent, technologically advanced life like us human beings? What about all those science fiction stories and blockbuster movies about super advanced alien spaceships flying through the universe? Well, we don't expect to find such intelligent life on any of the worlds of our own solar system, besides the Earth, of course. But many astronomers believe that somewhere in the universe, most likely, intelligent, technologically advanced aliens do exist. Somewhere out there. Enrico Fermi was the winner of the Nobel Prize for Physics. He was an Italian physicist and creator of the world's first nuclear reactor. He became famous for excelling in both experimental and theoretical physics during his wildly successful career. In the year 1950, while working at Los Alamos National Laboratory, Fermi found himself eating lunch with his colleagues and co-workers who were laughing and making jokes about a sarcastic cartoon in the newspaper showing aliens rifling through the garbage cans of the people of New York City. It was then that Fermi broke the humorous mood of the discussion and posed a powerful question. Where are they? Where is everyone? Are we alone in the universe? Ironically, Fermi never once wrote a single paper regarding the existence of alien life. Yet he posed a question that is often referred to as the Fermi Paradox. But Fermi was not the first to pose this question. 
years earlier, a famous Soviet rocket scientist named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky posed a very similar intellectual proposition about alien life elsewhere. Let's take a moment to consider what this question really means and why it would be called a paradox to begin with. The stars we see in the night sky are burning balls of hydrogen and helium gas, trillions of miles away from the Earth, much further away than Jupiter or any of our other planetary neighbors in our solar system. The stars that we see are so far away that we measure the distance between them in light years. Simply put, that's the distance it takes light to travel in a single year. As we said before, in our recent studies of exoplanets, planets that exist beyond our own solar system, we found that there could be billions of planets in the Milky Way galaxy, similar to our Earth. And as we said, our Earth has harbored life for 3 billion years, but the universe is nearly 14 billion years old. So life could have been evolving on many of these planets billions of years before it ever arose on the planet Earth. We know that the basic ingredients of life, like liquid water and amino acids, exist all over the universe. With billions of more years to evolve, life on at least a few of these planets must have developed intelligent civilizations like us, capable of using technology. If human beings have been building spaceships for 50 years, maybe other civilizations have done the same. If human beings are thinking of theoretical ways to travel to the nearby stars, maybe other civilizations would be too. And surely a civilization that was millions or billions of years more evolved than us would have much more advanced spaceships. Sure, space is very large, and the stars are very far away. But whether you were traveling at the speed of light, or just 1% the speed of light, it would take just a few million years to explore the entire Milky Way galaxy. A few million years might sound like a long time, but remember, our universe has existed for nearly 14 billion years. And yet, there does not appear to be any clear evidence that any advanced alien life forms have ever visited the Earth, or our own solar system. Not only that, but all of our studies on other stars and other exoplanets don't seem to show any evidence that advanced technological life exists anywhere in the universe. This is the paradox we face. Where is everyone? Are we alone? In the course of just a few thousand years, human beings created farming and agriculture to grow crops. We developed language and writing to communicate complex ideas with each other and to spread knowledge. We developed advanced technology and powerful weapons, which we've used to fight each other in countless wars. We even developed space travel, allowing us to explore beyond our pale blue planet and see what exists out in outer space. Yet there appears to be, as of yet, no clear evidence that anyone else in the universe has been able to do the same. More than a hundred years ago, the famous science fiction author H.G. Wells wrote a story about alien life on the planet Mars. Mars, sometimes called the Red Planet, is hundreds of millions of miles away from the Earth, but still fairly close when we consider the size of the solar system. Today, we know that this planet is a frigid, barren desert. But more than a century ago, we didn't know whether there might be intelligent life there. H.G. Wells called his novel 
The War of the Worlds. It depicted these aliens from Mars invading the Earth, sparking a war between the two planets. These are the opening lines of his science fiction story. No one would have believed that in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own, that as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe, about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Decades later, on the eve of Halloween in 1938, a radio station dramatized H.G. Wells' science fiction novel. Wells had his novel printed on paper, but this radio broadcast told its story by sending invisible signals through the air, which every home with a radio could tune in to listen to. The fictional radio broadcast was done in the realistic style of an actual radio newscast, less than a few months before the outbreak of World War II, as political and military tensions rose in Europe. Many Americans who turned on their radios that night heard horrifying descriptions of an all-out alien invasion of New York City. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the... The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, 
They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. Police stations were overwhelmed with calls. In New Jersey, highways were jammed with traffic as people tried to evacuate in the wake of the supposed invasion. One woman broke down the door of a church in Indiana, proclaiming that the East Coast had been destroyed by an alien force, and the world was coming to an end. For all of our intelligence as human beings, we're still subject to our emotions. Sometimes, when we're in a panic, we don't think clearly. And this is just the panic that was caused by a radio drama about a fictional visit by aliens less than a century ago. Imagine how we as a species might react to the real thing. A few decades after that infamous radio broadcast panicked America, human beings sent robotic explorers to survey nearby planets. We found no such advanced, malevolent creatures, at least not in our own solar system. The Voyager space probes were among those robotic explorers, arriving in the outer solar system in the 1970s to explore Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. These probes are still flying through outer space to this day, going further than any other man-made object in human history. Sometime after 2012, they left the solar system and entered interstellar space, the space between the stars. The planet Jupiter is hundreds of millions of miles away from the Earth, but the Voyager probes are currently billions of miles away from the Earth. These two probes also carried with them a golden disk, which included pictorial and mathematical instructions on how to play it. Any advanced civilization that found it would have a time capsule of life on Earth. On this golden disk, there were audio recordings of spoken greetings in 55 languages, ancient and modern, and in Morse code, the phrase Peraspera ad astera, through hardships to the stars. The disc also contained the sounds of animals, from birds to whales, along with classical music selections from Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven, just to name a few. The late astronomer Carl Sagan called it a message in a bottle thrown out into the cosmic ocean. The Voyager space probes have traveled further into outer space than any other man-made object, but our modern technology allows us to send something else into space that has gone even further. Radio waves. For about a century, the human beings of Earth have been broadcasting radio signals, traveling out into space at the speed of light. At ten light years away from the Earth, we would hear the greatest hit songs of 2008. At 70 light-years from the Earth, we would hear the very first television transmissions. At nearly 100 light-years from the Earth, we might hear the faint sound of the very first radio transmissions. Of course, the further our radio waves travel from the Earth, the more faint they become, like ripples from a stone dropped into a pond, slowly expanding outward. Once we travel more than 100 light-years from Earth, we would hear only silence. 
Within this bubble, which we call the radiosphere, there are thousands of stars. Many of these stars have planets. Over a hundred of these planets are likely suitable for life. Perhaps someone in our own galactic backyard has heard our broadcast. But that's just a tiny portion of the Milky Way galaxy. Just our own stellar neighborhood in a cosmic metropolis. Our galaxy contains hundreds of billions of stars and perhaps more than a hundred billion planets. The question persists. Is there anybody out there? Many answers have been proposed to the so-called Fermi Paradox. One of the more disturbing and controversial answers is that intelligent aliens have indeed already visited the Earth, either now or in the past. Perhaps they're here right now, even as I speak. Some have suggested that photos and eyewitness accounts of UFOs or unidentified flying objects might very well be sightings of extraterrestrial spacecraft in the skies of Earth. Such sightings have persisted for decades in the United States and around the world. These sightings are, no doubt, sometimes hoaxes. At other times, such sightings can be explained by more natural phenomenon. Consider ball lightning. It's a strange, exceptionally rare phenomenon in the Earth's atmosphere, often accompanying thunderstorms. These strange orbs of light are quite different from regular lightning. There's actually still a lot that we don't know about ball lightning, but we're confident that this is a natural event that occurs in the atmosphere, on very rare occasions when conditions are just right. Other UFO sightings are more difficult to explain. In 2010, a UFO caused an airport in China to close, rerouting 18 different airline flights. World-renowned theoretical physicist Michio Kaku said this about UFOs, quote, 95% of UFO sightings can be immediately identified as the planet Venus, as weather balloons, weather anomalies, swamp gas, you name it. We've got it nailed. It's the 5% that really give you the willies. 5% remain totally unexplained. We're talking about generals, Air Force pilots, governors of states that claim, hey, this is beyond our understanding of the laws of physics. America's first astronauts were among the most experienced pilots in the world and had not only spent time flying experimental military aircraft, but had often traveled into space multiple times. Astronaut Gordon Cooper flew into space in America's first space program, Project Mercury. Gordon Cooper claimed to have seen strange flying objects that he could not explain on several occasions. Apollo astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell went even further in talking about such unidentified objects. He was the sixth man to walk on the moon and holds an MS in aeronautical engineering as well as a doctorate in aeronautics. Dr. Mitchell stated quite unequivocally that many UFOs were what he called visitors from other planets. In talking about these objects, he said, quote, they've been observing us and been here for quite some time, and we see these craft all the time. In the 1970s, some UFO enthusiasts boldly claimed that perhaps some passages from the Jewish Torah's Book of Ezekiel describe advanced alien spaceships in great detail. At this time, Joseph Blumrich was chief of the Systems Layout Branch at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. 
During his career, he helped to design the Saturn V rocket that sent men to the moon, as well as America's first space station, Skylab. Determined to debunk this controversial fringe theory about UFOs, Blumrick began doing research, as well as reading these ancient religious texts for himself. He became so immersed in his research, he eventually left NASA to devote all of his time to writing a book on the subject of ancient alien spacecraft. Eventually, Blumrick became sincerely convinced that the Book of Ezekiel did, in fact, contain an ancient description of an advanced spacecraft. He published the book Spaceships of Ezekiel in 1974. The cover artwork depicts a strange craft, a shuttlecraft which Blumrick believed an alien species used to land on the planet Earth, a landing that he believed Ezekiel witnessed firsthand more than 2,000 years ago. Blumrick's research on the subject even inspired him to patent a new invention called the Omni-Wheel, a uniquely shaped wheel capable of rotating in any direction. Today, this special wheel is used on some autonomous robots. The patent belonged to Blumrick, but he freely admitted that he got the idea from a description written in an ancient text thousands of years ago. These are the words of that ancient text, which Blumrick believed described a component on an alien spaceship. Quote, This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions. The Book of Ezekiel, Chapter 1, written in 570 BCE. While it's undeniably intriguing to speculate about alien contact and UFOs, the reality today is that the vast majority of astronomers and scientists say that there's no hard evidence that aliens have ever visited the Earth. Archaeologists and ancient historians reject Blumrick's claim that any ancient text describes visits by aliens. It is indeed an extraordinary claim to say that extraterrestrials have visited the Earth now or in the past. In the words of astronomer Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The fact remains that extraordinary evidence just doesn't seem to exist thus far. Astronomy and all science gather data through observations of the world around us. We cannot observe the events described in an ancient written text, nor can we observe the events described by a few eyewitnesses in modern times. It is entirely possible that alien spaceships are visiting the Earth. There's nothing impossible about this notion, but there's also no hard evidence to prove that this is the case. And yet, even if aliens have never visited us, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Maybe they'll give us a call someday, or send us a text message. Or maybe... We don't even need to get a call from them to know that they exist. Perhaps one day our study of astronomy will reveal evidence of extraterrestrials. Or maybe, just maybe, we found the evidence already. Recently, astronomers became fascinated by a strange phenomenon around a star more than 1,000 light years from the planet Earth. The star that I'm referring to is in the constellation Cygnus. The name Cygnus 
comes from the ancient word for swan. Within this constellation we have Deneb, one of the brightest stars in the night sky, and part of what we call the Summer Triangle. There's a very strange star, too faint to be seen with the naked eye, not far from Cygnus. We call it KIC 846-2852. It goes by another name that's a bit easier to remember. Tabby's star, named after Tabitha Boyajane, the female astronomer who discovered it. Tabby's star seems to be fluctuating in brightness, getting dimmer, then brighter, dimmer, then brighter. Sometimes stars with exoplanets orbiting around them appear to dim as the planets pass in front of the star. But in that case, the star's brightness would fluctuate at regular intervals. The fluctuations we see around Tabby's star are very different. Astronomer Tabitha Boyajane said, quote, Everything we've learned about this star makes it more difficult to understand. It doesn't fall into any known category. Boyajane calls it the WTF star. But the acronym isn't as crude as you might think. WTF stands for Where's the Flux? What is causing this irregular flux of light? Freeman Dyson was one of the most brilliant mathematicians in history. He's also a theoretical physicist. At only five years old, Dyson calculated the number of atoms in the sun. Before his 30th birthday, he received a lifetime appointment to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He once suggested that if a super-advanced alien race existed, they might consume all the resources of their home planet, and that even consuming those resources might not be enough. Dyson speculated that such an advanced alien race with such energy needs might build massive megastructures around their star to harness as much solar energy as possible. This would be space engineering on a staggering scale. The International Space Station is about the largest thing human beings have ever built in outer space, and it's only about the size of a football field. A fully constructed Dyson Sphere would be more than a million times the size of the planet Earth. The human race is not yet capable of building anything so massive, but advanced extraterrestrials just might be. Some astronomers have suggested that Tabby's star might actually be the first evidence of advanced alien life in our universe. Evidence that more than a thousand light years away, someone far more intelligent than us has built a Dyson Sphere. A space structure so large that the effects of it can be seen from our telescopes here on Earth. But we're really not sure that this is the case. Many astronomers have other theories that are less controversial. Remember the planet Jupiter, which we talked about earlier? It's the largest planet in our solar system. And yet, not even a planet the size of Jupiter could cause the strange light fluctuations that we see around Tabby's star. Even so, some astronomers believe that an even more massive planet, perhaps some five times the size of Jupiter, with rings larger than the rings of the planet Saturn, might be a culprit. Or perhaps a cluster of comets or asteroids. The truth is, though, that we really don't know. Further observations spanning years will be needed if we're going to solve this mystery. In the meantime, there's another way astronomers might be able to search for signs of intelligent alien life. This method is called 
radio astronomy. Since there's no air in space, sound can't travel through space the way it travels through the air, but there are many invisible electromagnetic waves traveling through space at any given moment that we can detect. We use radio telescopes to pick up on these strange radio waves. We can even convert these radio waves back into sound. In the winter of 1967, astronomers Jocelyn Brunel and Anthony Hewish picked up something very strange on their radio telescopes. Regular pulses separated by 1.3 second intervals. Bell Burnell said, quote, We really didn't believe we had picked up signals from another civilization, but obviously the idea had crossed our minds, and we had no proof that it was a natural radio emission. It's an interesting problem. If one thinks one may have detected life elsewhere, how does one announce the results responsibly? They named the radio signal LGM-1. The acronym stood for Little Green Men. Eventually, though, the extraterrestrial hypothesis was abandoned. A natural explanation was found. These two astronomers had discovered something very strange in the universe. But it wasn't alien life. When a massive star enters its death throes, we see a supernova. It's an incredibly bright explosion out in interstellar space. What remains afterwards is what we call a neutron star. Essentially, the extremely dense, collapsed core of a star. Some neutron stars rotate, throwing off powerful pulses of electromagnetic radiation at regularly repeating intervals. Discoveries like this have helped astronomers tell the difference between natural radio signals out in outer space and signals that could be more artificial. Over the past several decades, many astronomers have devoted their time to looking for possible radio signals from advanced alien life forms in other star systems. The term for such a search is known by the acronym SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. This is not a new idea. Nearly a century ago, the United States Army Signal Corps undertook a strange project. The Army Signal Corps develops and tests communication systems for the United States military, but in 1924, they instructed radio stations all around the country to shut down and cease broadcasting so that their army engineers could listen for possible radio signals from aliens on the planet Mars. At the time, astronomers still couldn't be sure whether Mars was a cold, lifeless desert or an inhabited planet. They heard no signals from Mars, but more focused searches of different stars have taken place in recent years. Consider the constellation Sagittarius. It's one of the constellations of the Zodiac. Ancient peoples looked up at this constellation and saw a centaur, a mythological creature that was half human, half horse. In the summer of 1977, a radio telescope in Ohio was pointed at the constellation Sagittarius, gathering data. This stationary radio telescope was able to scan the sky, by relying on the Earth's rotation. As time progressed and the Earth rotated, different star systems would become visible. That meant that the telescope could observe any one point in the night sky for about 72 seconds. One day, astronomer Jerry Amon was working at SETI as a volunteer analyzing large amounts of data from that telescope. 
printed on dozens upon dozens of sheets of paper. So far, it had been a tedious day's work. But one signal received by the radio telescope stood out from all the rest. It was so bizarre, so powerful, so intense, that Eamon circled it in red pen, and on the margins of the paper, he wrote the words, Wow. It lasted for 72 seconds, the full amount of time that the telescope was pointed at that region of the sky. The continuous wave signal was more than 30 times stronger than the background radio signals that were normally picked up by the telescope. In the 1950s, two physicists from Cornell University wrote that advanced alien life might send signals at a frequency of 1420 MHz. This frequency is naturally emitted by hydrogen, the most common element in the universe. Such a basic fact would likely be known by all intelligent, scientifically literate species in the universe. The wow signal, as it came to be called, was found on almost exactly that frequency, just as the Cornell physicists predicted it would be. To this day, the wow signal remains the strongest possible candidate for an intelligent extraterrestrial radio transmission. We've pointed our radio telescopes back to this region of the sky many times in the past few decades, but we haven't seen the signal again since. More natural explanations, like a cluster of comets, have been proposed to explain the wow signal, but no one seems to agree, and none of these theories have gained widespread acceptance or consensus among radio astronomers. If it was a signal from extraterrestrial life, then why have they not broadcast it again? And if it was a natural phenomenon, why have we never observed it again? To this day, the signal remains a mystery. We've simply never seen anything like it before, or since. Very often, though, SETI research projects aren't nearly as exciting as the 1977 WOW signal. Radio astronomers are searching for a needle in a massive haystack. They've been working at it for decades, but it's a big galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars. In the 1980s, U.S. Senator William Proxmire pushed NASA to cease all government funding for SETI projects, suggesting that they were simply a waste of taxpayer money. A personal visit from Carl Sagan caused the U.S. Senator to change his mind, but by 1993, government funding was once again cut off. To this day, SETI relies on private funding to conduct their operations. In the words of astronomer Carl Sagan, quote, a SETI search taking decades would cost less than the budget overruns on a single modest weapons system in a single year. Even so, the U.S. government just doesn't believe such a search would be worth it. Let's consider Project Phoenix, a privately funded endeavor that relied on the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, the second largest radio telescope in the entire southern hemisphere. This SETI project look for patterns in cosmic radio signals, analyzing data from 800 stars in a 200 light year radius. They found nothing. In 2004, the leader of the project concluded, quote, we live in a quiet neighborhood. Again, we must ask, is there anybody out there? Yet, 
Despite all this, we know more about our galaxy today than at any other time in human history. We're rapidly collecting data on habitable exoplanets orbiting around other stars. Seth Shostak, the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, recently made a bold prediction. He said that with the information on exoplanets we have today, we will find clear evidence of extraterrestrial radio signals within the next 25 years. The greatest discovery in human history might be just around the corner. It might even happen tomorrow. It seems only prudent to prepare ourselves. If E.T. does call us, what will they say? Of course, we really have no way of knowing. Astronomer Carl Sagan had some ideas, though. In 1985, Sagan wrote a science fiction novel called Contact which later became a film in 1997. In the novel, advanced aliens send radio messages to Earth that consist of engineering blueprints and schematics for a special spacecraft to carry human passengers to an in-person meeting with aliens at a distant point in outer space. In Sagan's television series, Cosmos, he suggested that perhaps a radio signal from E.T. might contain a detailed survey of every planet in the Milky Way galaxy, the planets with life, as well as the planets with advanced civilizations, the Encyclopedia Galactica. After all, a species a million or a billion years more evolved than us would have far better spacecraft and would likely have explored large areas of outer space. Let's say we do receive some sort of message from an alien intelligence. How will we react? What if E.T. calls tomorrow? What sort of protocols, procedures, and contingency plans do the governments of the world have for such a profound discovery? The answer is, we really have none. No government on Earth that we know of has a detailed plan for alien contact, even though such an event might very well take place in the next two decades. Remember the panic caused by the fictional 1938 or the world's broadcast. Imagine how nations, cultures, even religious leaders might react to news that we are not alone in the universe. In the year 1960, just as the space race began, NASA commissioned the Brookings Institution to write a report on the implications of human space travel and all the new innovations that it would bring, from communication satellites to advancements in our own scientific knowledge of the solar system. The Brookings Report was 186 pages long. Two of those pages addressed the idea of contact with intelligent life in the universe. The report stated, quote, The knowledge that life existed in other parts of the universe might lead to a greater unity of men on Earth, based on the oneness of man or on the age-old assumption that any stranger is threatening. Much would depend on what if anything, was communicated between man and the other beings, since, after the discovery, there will be years of silence, because even the closest stars are several light-years away, and an exchange of radio communications would take twice the number of light-years separating our sun from theirs. Anthropological files contain many examples of societies, sure of their place in the universe, which have disintegrated when they found out that they had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies, espousing different ideas, 
and different ways of life. Others that survived such an experience usually did so by paying the price of changes in values, attitudes, and behavior. Since intelligent life might be discovered at any time via the radio telescope research presently underway, the consequences of such a discovery are presently unpredictable. The Brookings Report recommended that further studies be done on the potential impact of such a discovery and that contingencies should be made for how political leaders should handle such a strange new discovery. In the half-century since the report, there has been very little follow-up. The only real formal set of protocols for such a discovery was sent by the International Academy of Astronautics, or IAA. First and foremost, the scientists who made the discovery should work to verify that the signal is indeed of extraterrestrial origin and not a natural phenomenon in outer space. It wouldn't be good to announce the discovery of alien life to the world if the astronomers who discovered it weren't sure their evidence was authentic. It's certainly possible that the astronomers might want to keep it a secret simply for fear of embarrassing themselves. It's also possible that their own government might not want to make the discovery public immediately, so that's why this first protocol is very important. Still, if the signal were being received for a longer period of time, say, just a matter of hours, the radio astronomers would eventually need to coordinate with radio astronomers all around the world. Within hours, the star system that was the source of the signal would start to set below the horizon, and astronomers would need other radio telescopes just to monitor the signal. Information travels so fast in the 21st century, it seems unlikely that this discovery could remain a secret for very long. These protocols state that after the signal has been verified, the Secretary General of the United Nations should be informed. No attempts should be made to send a response to this signal unless world leaders have had the chance to convene and discuss the implications. The United Nations General Assembly would then decide what, if any, response should be sent back to that distant star system. Of course, this is just a document written by the IAA. It's not legally binding and does not carry the force of international law. There's really no way to enforce it. If a nation abruptly decided to adopt a different set of protocols or procedures, they'd be free to do so. Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking recently announced that a 10-year search for intelligent life was being undertaken by the organization Breakthrough Listen, privately funded by Russian billionaire Yuri Milner. The $100 million search will survey 1 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy that are closest to our own planet Earth. Hawking said, quote, We believe that life arose spontaneously on Earth, so in an infinite universe, there must be other occurrences of life. It's time to commit to finding the answer, to search for life beyond Earth. The breakthrough initiatives are making that commitment. We are alive, we are intelligent, and we must know. If we do find evidence of intelligent life in space, though, Hawking warns strongly against sending any response at all. Stephen Hawking says that when E.T. calls, we shouldn't answer. We might do well to consider historical examples from our own planet of first contact. Christopher Columbus and the indigenous people of the Americas 
This historical anecdote was referenced by Stephen Hawking. Both groups, of course, were human beings or homo sapiens, but one civilization was more technologically advanced than the other. It's one of the best examples in human history of two intelligent civilizations separated by vast distances, making contact with one another. Hawking said that announcing our presence in the cosmos would be much like the Native Americans meeting the European colonizers. It didn't turn out very well for the Native Americans. Eventual genocide was the result. The technologically superior race was not kind or benevolent. When the Native Americans refused to continue to give food and shelter to the European colonizers, Columbus said that if they did not comply, he would make the moon disappear. Of course, Columbus was well aware that a lunar eclipse was about to take place, and the shadow of the earth would cover up the moon. When the moon disappeared, just as he said it would, the Native Americans were horrified and agreed to give Columbus whatever he wanted. The more technologically advanced civilization exploited its superior knowledge of science, specifically astronomy, to strike fear into the hearts of the other civilization, to force them to comply with any and all demands. Some have suggested that the answer to the Fermi paradox is that all intelligent civilizations share this same concern mentioned by Hawking, the fear that the other might be hostile. Perhaps every civilization in the universe is afraid to talk to the other. Maybe every intelligent civilization is like a 12-year-old kid at a middle school dance, hesitant to introduce themselves and make the first move for fear of rejection. In our world today, we have enough nuclear weapons to destroy our planet. It's entirely possible, though perhaps not probable, that a human conflict could spiral out of control and a nuclear war could destroy our civilization tomorrow. Climate scientists believe that our increased output of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide have fundamentally altered our planet and will continue to do so for quite some time. Rising sea levels and storm surges could destroy coastal cities and farmland. Drought could cause widespread famine and starvation. The oceans could turn acidic, causing the deaths of most fish. In a worst-case scenario, human beings could very well be extinct within the next hundred years. The Earth has been around for billions of years. Life on Earth has seen many, many mass extinctions. Carl Sagan once said, if the entire history of our universe were condensed into a 12-month-long calendar, human beings would arrive on our planet only within the last few hours of December 31st. All of human history would span the last few seconds before midnight. It would indeed be arrogant to think that our own species will be around forever and that we are immune to extinction. Author Arthur C. Clarke once said, quote, The dinosaurs disappeared because they could not adapt to their changing environment. We too shall disappear if we cannot adapt to an environment that contains spaceships, computers, and thermonuclear weapons. Paleontologist Peter Ward has studied many mass extinctions in the Earth's history. He speaks of something he calls the Great Filter, claiming this may be the answer to the Fermi Paradox. Peter Ward says that intelligent civilizations like ours do arise in the universe, but almost as soon as they develop advanced technology, 
they may use it carelessly and foolishly, causing their own destruction and disappearance. The advent of advanced technology that we have seen since the Industrial Revolution is a sort of technological adolescence, and if we're going to explore the universe, we need to grow up and put our differences aside. Or maybe we're simply not capable of doing that. That might be why the universe, thus far, appears to be so quiet. This seems like a dim note to end our journey on, the notion that we're either destined for imminent extinction, or that we could be surrounded by malevolent aliens ready to wipe us out. But the great astronomer Carl Sagan was more hopeful. He believed that it was indeed possible for human beings to prosper and survive extinction. In his eyes, a call from E.T. would offer hope for humanity. Consider his words. Quote, The receipt of an interstellar message would be one of the major events in human history, and the beginning of the deprovincialization of our planet. The signal alone would be profoundly significant. It would mean that someone, somewhere, has learned to survive technological adolescence, that self-destruction is not inevitable, that we also may have a future. Such knowledge, it seems to me, might be worth a great price.